0: If you'd like to go ahead and be making your way over to Chronicles, we'll be over in First Chronicles chapter 13, here in a few minutes, we're going to build up to that, but we'll be spending quite a bit of time there this morning. So far in our studies, we've seen some pretty rough things happen with the Ark of the Covenant. What started out as this wonderful reminder of Eden, that this is where God is going to meet with man, where you've got that little Eden blessing being held, we see that by the days of Samuel, that the people of Israel are no longer respecting that, and they storm Eden, they go into the most holy place, and they take the ark out, and they treat it like this good luck charm, which was anything but that for them. And God says, I'm going to show you what happens when you don't respect me. And so we've got these somewhat uh, parallel stories presented where the Israelites disrespect the ark, where the Philistines disrespect the ark. I think what the writer's doing is he's showing us that the people of God are just acting a whole lot like the pagans are, and at times the pagans maybe understand things the people of God don't. They remember uh, the time in Egypt when God sent plagues on the land, They remember the time when God delivered His people there. And so they recall that, and it basically boils down to in that account that there's only one group that's turning neither to the right hand nor to the left, and that's two milk cows as they take the ark back. The other groups have gone astray. And so what we have seen and what we are really going to pay attention to this morning is this idea of how God is teaching a lot of things with the Ark of the Covenant, but one thing in particular is He's seeking to impress them with the idea that if God says something, that's to be taken seriously. That if God says, this is how I want it done, then that's how God wants it done. And though you may come up with all kinds of ideas that sound pretty good, they're not going to work if you're leaving God out of the picture. So this morning as we continue in this journey with the Ark of the Covenant, we're going to skip over several years. We'll see how the writer ties all of this together, but it's going to be a while later than what we've been talking about. And we need to just in passing talk about a time period when we really don't hear much about the Ark of the Covenant. We know that Israel had demanded a king of Samuel, and Samuel was upset about that. God says, give them a king. I'll show them. this, This is what they think they want, that they really don't. And so here's Saul who appears to be exactly what a king ought to be. He's tall and he's good looking and he seems very, very humble in the beginning. But as his life continues, we find he's anything but that. As he sets out to do things his own way. And really we only have one passing reference to the ark during this time. Saul's out on the battlefield. And he said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. And that's pretty much it. During the days of Saul, of what we find out about the ark of the covenant. We kind of target in on this phrase where it says, At that time the ark was with the people of Israel. And on the surface, that certainly sounds like it's traveling with them. I'm not sure whether that's the case or not. We just don't have many details. We're going to find that here in just a minute, when we get to David, sounds like it's exactly where they left it after that incident earlier that we talked about yesterday. So it may just simply mean that this is a time period before the temple's built, the people are not really respecting the ark like they ought In fact, David's going to help us a little bit with that. He's going to say in talking about the days of King Saul, he says, then let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. So he gives somewhat of a testimony, which we'll also talk about here in a little while. So that's all we know during that time period. But when we get to the time of David, the ark of the covenant is going to come back in a very big way as we're going to have accounts both in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles that'll tell us about the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to focus on the Chronicles account this morning. But let me just say this about what we find in 2 Samuel. These these two tellings, the authors are trying to teach some lessons for us. And those are not necessarily the same lessons. And so while the account is the same, the presentation of it's going to be a bit different. So, just kind of sum up what we find in 2 Samuel, is we're going to find a contrast in the faithfulness of David. That's the point that the writer's trying to make to us. Because he tells us in chapter 5, verse 25, he says, David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines. So here we find David, he's been obedient, he, he's doing what God says, he's having great success. But just a few verses on down in the 2nd Samuel account, it says, David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, if you remember, we read that account earlier, and I, or that statement earlier, and I said, we'll see that again that this is kind of the sign that God is not happy with what's going on. And so the way it's being described is this ark is owned by a very powerful God who's being dishonored. And so as the writer of 2 Samuel is taking us through the account, he says, you know, David was really doing well. He was following God, he was listening to Him, he was winning battles. But then when we come to the ark of the covenant, David's going to get way off track. And he's going to learn the exact same lesson that the people in the days of of Eli had to learn when they took the ark inappropriately. Now, when we come to the Chronicles account, I think our author here is trying to show us the answer to this question. What kind of king is David going to be? And he's going to use the telling of the Ark of the Covenant and a couple of other surrounding stories to answer that question for us. That David's at a time of decision. He's got to decide what exactly he's going to pursue, what kind of life he's going to live as the king of Israel. All right, so with that kind of as our backdrop, let's go ahead and get over into the Chronicles account where once again we're going to see a terrible incident of the ark being very much disrespected. And so we're here we've got David. And David, I think, has a very honorable idea. He says, I've, I've taken this city, I want to make this city the city of God. I want to have the centerpiece of this city, God's presence among us. And so we find here that he makes the decision that he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, the way the writer is going to explain this to us is very much understated. He's building up to a point, but let's look and see these different things that he tells us. Beginning in verse 1, it says, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and with every leader. It's what a good king does, right? Good king is going to talk to his people. He's going to talk to his army. He's going to say, let's let's bring the ark back. And so he's getting that with them and their approval. Then we look at verse 2, and the momentum's beginning to build a bit here. We're beginning to see David getting excited about this. And so David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. All right? So once again, we're finding David sounding pretty good. He says, if this is good in your eyes, and if it's good in the eyes of the Lord, we're going to send, we're going to get the Levites, we're going to bring all this back. It's going to be this really fantastic parade of bringing the ark into the city. And then he does what many politicians do. He begins to contrast himself with others who have preceded him. And so in verse 3, He says, then let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Now we still find that, don't we? You listen to any current president, and he may not ever mention the name of the guy who preceded him, but he'll say something like, in the previous administration, things were not done the right way, but, well, that's exactly what David's doing here. And he may very well be right with that. Certainly it seems like Saul is not consulting God like he needs to. So he contrasts that with what he found with King Saul. But then we get to a point where we have to say, okay, is is this really a good thing that they're doing? We might say yes, because way back when he was consulting the leaders, he said, now if this is good in the eyes of God. But yet what the chronicler never tells us is that he prayed about it. Did you notice that? There never seems to be an indication that he's asking God about it. And in fact, what our writer here is going to do is to give us a throwback to the judges. Let me just put this up on the screen for us to see. As they're talking about bringing the ark back, what the text says is, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. That's kind of the theme of Judges where it says the people are, had no king in that day and they were doing what was right in their own eyes, I just, I just believe that's what the writer is wanting us to think about. That here, maybe we haven't learned the lessons of history. We have not learned what went on in those days when God punished the people for that kind of thing. And so they're, they're doing what's right in their own eyes, they're getting ready to bring all of this back, so the stage is now set. Samuel account, we'll even flesh this out a little bit more about just that excitement that's going on during this time. And so the ark is getting ready to make its return now. So let's look at verse 5. David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Labo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerah. That is a massive amount of geography that's given here. (laughs) That's an interesting description that I don't know that we find anywhere else. It says like I brought them from Egypt all the way to the north so that we could bring this Ark of the Covenant back. And if you notice, our author has picked us up right where he left us off in Kiriath-Jerim. You remember that? The city on a hill in the city, or the, the house on the hill and the city of trees. Yeah, so it's on little Eden spot, David's saying, now it's time for us to bring the ark back from that spot to bring it up now to where it belongs in the house of God. And so as we continue on, we find out what happens here. Verse 6, David and all Israel went up to Balaam that is to carry it to Jerim, that belongs to Judah to bring from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim. Now what we've learned is at this point we say, uh-oh. <laughs> There's about to be a problem here. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahioah. We're driving the cart. Every book of the Bible has an ebb and flow to it. Every book of the Bible is setting scenes up so that when we read it, we're making connections. And if we've been reading through Samuel and Chronicles, we're remembering, wait a minute. There's somebody else who's already tried this. There's somebody else who put the the ark on a cart And so what the writer is pretty much saying to us is they're treating the Ark of the Covenant just like a bunch of pagans treat it. Now God let it go. He had not, as far as I know, given all these instructions to the Philistines. I don't think the same rules are applying to them with it. But yet, what he's doing here is he's saying the people of God under this really up-and-coming man-after-God's-own-heart king are transporting the ark just like they did way back when i don't know if they knew that or not i don't know that the israelites thought well the last time this thing was carried was on a cart maybe it was okay i don't know if they knew that or not did you also notice it's a new cart Can you kind of imagine the thought that was going on behind this? Now, this is a really big deal. We're not going to put the ark on some cart that's been carrying a lot of hay or animals or something like that. We're going to get a brand new one. We're going to get a holy cart for this ark to travel on. And what happens? Well, as it's coming down, coming down from the hill, remember, Benadab's house is up on the hill, so it's coming down. It's going through the threshing floor here. We read about that. If you look in verse 9, it says, When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down, because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. It's a natural thing, isn't it? It's a natural thing. If something's tipping over, A lot of times our minds don't process, okay, do I have the strength to stop it? Our natural reaction is just to kind of reflexively stop whatever's falling from falling all the way. And that's what Uzzah does. God strikes him down. You notice anything familiar in this verse that we just read, verse 10? The anger of the Lord was kindled. He struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark. Hold your place here for a minute. Look back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. God has pronounced punishments and a curse, and he's, He's reviewing things now. Verse 22, chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat forever. Therefore, I'll send him out of the garden. It's the same line. God says, now that they've wronged me, they may try to reach out their hand and take something that does not belong to them. You think our writer is wanting us to think Genesis? Genesis, I believe so. When he puts that line in, he's saying that Uzzah reached out his hand and he tried to touch something for which he did not have the permission nor the right to touch and God strikes him down because of it. All right, we'll be back to that a little bit later on. So then, verse 10 is going to make another point that we need to refer back to our previous two days. Again, look at verse 10. I've got it up on the screen with the word struck. So that we can see that. You remember the point we made yesterday? Where God was talking about that he struck. And that's mentioned two or three times. So our writer has picked up that same idea from earlier. And he says he struck Uzzah down and he died there. So God is showing his displeasure with all of this. So it's a very traumatic scene that's going on with all of this. And you've got David who had just been so excited about what was happening. Bringing the ark up, he's got all Israel watching. And then this happens. And the text is going to tell us that David was angry and afraid. Look at verse 11. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Isaac. And that place is called Perez Uzza to this day. And David was afraid of God on that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So here he is. He says, I'm so upset. We're just going to rename this area. From now on, it's going to be called Breaking Out Against Uzza. That's going to be the name of this place. And it's going to contrast then if we were looking in the second Samuel account where something else is named breaking out let's just take a look at this second Samuel chapter 5 verse 20 it says David defeated the enemy and he said the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood therefore the name of that place is called baal Perazim." all right so when David's Following God, it's a happy naming. He's broke out against my enemy, so I'm going to call it by that. But now what we find is David's naming this because he's terrified and he's upset and he says, this is where God broke out against us. So then, we're finding a king who realizes what it's like to be on outs with God. And so... He says, how am I ever going to get this ark to me? And I may just suggest to you here that David's experiencing an out of Eden moment. Here's one of those times in the text where God is bringing us back to realize what sin does in the destruction of the relationship, and whereas Adam and Eve could no longer get to that tree, here's David in his own kind of tree of life moment, this idea of this box that's representing the presence of God, he's saying, I can't, how am I going to get even close to it here? I, I can't bring it to me. And when the text says, he's afraid... We remember what God said about Adam when God made his entrance into the garden. God says, Adam, where are you? He said, I hid myself because I was afraid. Exact opposite of the relationship God wants with us. He doesn't want us hiding in terror. He he wants fellowship with us, but it's got to be on his terms. And so David says, let's just put it at the house of Obed-Edom. Let's just take the ark. So once again... (laughs) We've got the ark going into the home of an individual. We've had Abinadab, who's been the caretaker, he and his family for some time. And now for a little while, not nearly as long, Obed-Edom's going to be taking care of it. And the text says God is just blessing Obed-Edom's house because he's showing hospitality to the Lord. The Lord has, in a sense, moved in to the house of Obed-Edom. All right, now if you're looking at your text here, the story kind of comes to a screeching halt. You look at, at chapter 13 we've got verse 14 talking about the ark staying there and then you've got chapter 14 which almost appears to be totally out of place it's kind of like the, the writer says oh let me just insert a couple of stories here I got a little space in my scroll i'm going to stick them in here that's not the case i'm convinced the two stories that follow are very strategically placed now Since our time's limited this morning, I'm not going to read through chapter 14, but let me just kind of hit the highlights for you here. We've got the ark, the failed attempt in chapter 13. Then we've got the ark, the successful attempt in chapter 15. And then we've got two stories in between. And the first story is showing David as this growing monarch in power. And so there's several things that we're told here. We're told that other... World leaders are recognizing him as a leader. That's always important, isn't it? And so that he's getting that honor. He's the head of an exalted nation. The chronicler tells us that. Talks about that he has many wives. He's got his own harem, which in that day and age was a sign of your power, sign of your elite status. He's having lots of sons. So all these things are showing him as this really powerful monarch. And then we come to story number 2. And in the Chronicles account, we're going to read about this defeat of the Philistines that the writer of Samuel put before the story of the ark. So the chronicler has has kind of moved it to a strategic location. And this is where David is going up against the Philistines. And the primary emphasis of this account is David's trusting God. He goes to God. He says, what do you want me to do? What plan? Tell me the plan you want me to follow and I'll follow it. And so David faithfully trusts the Lord. And the Philistines proved to be no match for God. So these seemingly irrelevant stories are indeed relevant. And what they're saying to us as the reader is, All right, as we we contemplate this story of the ark, it's showing us that David's got to make a decision. Is he going to do things on his own? Is he going to do what's right in his own eyes? Or is he going to take the time to follow God, to listen to what God has to say? And then we come to our second attempt. Months have passed. David says, it's time to bring this ark to Jerusalem. And so we see this time, it's not so much the polling of the commanders and the getting the parade together and all of this. This time, what we're going to find is a very different story. And so let me just hit the highlights here with you. As David is talking about bringing the ark up in verse 2 of chapter 15, he said, No one but Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the the Lord and to minister to Him before it. And in verse 12, he says, You are the heads of your fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves." you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. And in verse 15, it says, the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. And we find then in verse 26, and because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. You see a pretty different story here? The writer is saying, David went back and he got Levites and he got instructions and he made sure the Levites were prepared and consecrated and ready to go. But let's look at what may be the most telling verse of all of this. In verse 13, David says, Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us against us, because we did not seek Him according to the rule. That's a big deal. David says, looking at this thing in the rearview mirror, I know exactly what happened. We didn't do it like God told us to. And because of that, He broke out against us. And so now, as the ark is making its journey again, when you read the Samuel account, you read about thousands of animals being sacrificed, and just every, like every six steps, they stop, and before they get to step number seven, they offer, uh, it's kind of like the sacrifice is the seventh step. And they're doing this all the way up. But the chronicler is going to focus in more on David's attitude and all this, and it's going to be one where worship. And, and glory and honor and praise are given to God. And so if you look on over to chapter 16, you find at the ending of this account, the psalm that's included here. And within this psalm, we're going to see all kinds of praise being given. In fact, look down to verse 31. It says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. Very different tune to what David's singing. And then he completes that psalm with this praise of salvation. Verse 35, Save us, O God, of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. When they did it by the rule, David understood this is how you're in fellowship with the God of your salvation. Now, let me just point this out also. That when we're looking at this section, what David learned, we must learn. This section is not simply here to give us an historical account of the ark. It's here to show us a principle that jumps the testaments. That when God has a way of doing something, that's what He expects to do. And so, it's it's a way that we can learn how to establish the authority for what we do. Both negatively and positively, we can learn that we see, first of all, that it's not by the appearance of good. I mean, this thing looked like it's a great idea. We'll get the ark, we'll make a lot better time having it on a cart, let the animals do the work. Didn't happen. And I wonder how many good Christians and good churches have gotten off base because they've said, well, this seems like a really great idea for promoting the gospel. This seems like a really good idea. And what should be ringing in the ears is the book of Judges is that when something seems good in your own eyes or or good in your own hearing, you better stop for a minute and make sure God's on board with this thing. And so we don't establish our authority on the appearance of good, and we don't establish our authority by the failure of someone else. I think that's a real danger for a lot of us. And we, we start looking at our lives, and we know they're not exactly what they need to be, and the statement is something like, well, I know I'm not perfect, but, And then we'll give an example of somebody who's a failure. Well, was that okay? I mean, was it good for David to do this because Saul had kind of messed things up? No. That's an inappropriate way to establish authority. And it's not by large numbers. You had Israel turning out. Everybody's excited. Everybody's cheering. But large numbers don't indicate that this is the right thing to do. Now, I may need to to go down just a little short rabbit trail here. I think sometimes we take this to an equal and opposite error. (laughs) And you think, you know, if you can get a church down to 5 or 10 or 15 people, now you got the really solid people there. You know, this is a really faithful church. We're small, so that proves we're faithful. That's a bogus idea. It may just be you're so ornery nobody can get along with you, Right? (laughs) So numbers are not the tell. So on the one hand, we don't say, man, we're doing really great. We taught 300. We taught 400 people. Nor do we say, man, we're down to 15. Both are missing the point here. It's the idea that you're not establishing your authority by the consensus of the crowd. Everybody's not taking a vote to decide what's the best thing to do. Now this, this story teaches us all of those things in the negative. What it teaches us in the positive is authority always flows from God. That's where it comes from. And when David says, the reason he broke out against us is because we didn't do it by the book. We didn't do it by the rule. He's telling us all these centuries later the exact same principle we need to hear. And so if God has said to do something and he has specifically told us how to do it, that's how he wants it done. And we don't start saying foolish things like, well, I know that was the case in the first century, but times are different now. No, no, If God said it's what we do. And on those occasions where God has left certain things up to our judgment, we use the godly standards and the godly principles to make sure that we're doing it in the way that He approves of. That's how authority is established. Now, let me just make a couple more points about this. I think one of the hard things in this account for a lot of people is to reconcile this bursting forth God as being a God of mercy. This is what trips a lot of folks up with the Bible. You know, they're, they're rolling along and they get to the flood and here's God killing people. And you get to the later in, in the book of Genesis and you got death occurring and then you get on into Joshua and lots of people are dying. It's like, well, how can a loving, merciful God be this God who's killing people? I understand that I struggle with some of those things too. But it's always understanding that God has a righteous motive in mind. And I think there's a lot of folks who approach this account and they want to lend a lot of sympathy to Uzzah. You know, poor Uzzah. It, it was an overreaction. You know, he's, he's just this innocent guy who's standing by the ark and he's really trying to do something righteous here by saving it. and God strikes him down. That just smacks of unfairness, Right? You back up and you look at this in light of what David said. What we've got to understand is that David and Uzzah and all involved were in an absolute act of defiance against God. How did they know how to do it right the second time? Well, they knew where to go to find the answer. And if they knew it the second time, they knew it the first time as well. And so Uzzah is not some innocent bystander. He is a man who should have known better, a man who should have known the rule, a man who should have protested loudly when they started taking the ark out of the house of Abinadab and putting it on a cart. And God is saying, i got to show you here that I'm serious about all of this. So no, this is not an overreaction. This is exactly what God said would happen if you disrespected the command that he gave. And that's what David admitted. And he broadens that striking against us to striking against us because he says we're all standing condemned in this. We've all done things the wrong way. And it was a lack to pick up on our phrasing from yesterday. It's a lack of respect for the gloriness of God. They didn't consider God to be heavy. Let's look and see how that attitude changes a little bit. That psalm that we read a little bit of, let me just show you a little bit more of it here. Glory in His name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Declare His glory among the nations. Ascribe to the Lord, O families and people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship Him in the splendor of holiness. Save us, O God, of our salvation. And gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. You see a different man here? Here's a man who the chronicler is saying he made the right choice. He had the choice to be a monarch right in his own eyes or he had the choice to be a servant king and he's saying he's making the right choice here. He's glorying in the name of God and he's recognizing that. And so what we find in all of this is that mercy is present for those who are going to seek God. You know, following the rule... Can actually become a negative thing if we let it. We can begin to think, uh, begin to, to think something like, well, you know, if I do everything according to the book, then, then there's all whether we put it in this phrasing or not, there's, there's going to be this obligation for God to save me. It's kind of where the Pharisees were in all of this. If I can do it just by the book, if I can get everything exactly right, then, then I'm, I'm earning my way to heaven. That's the wrong way to look at it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and in need of the, the just salvation of the Lord. The reason we follow the book is because we respect and love the God of the book. You see, it's not for our own glory. It's for His glory. And so when I am intent on God remaking me into the image of His Son, I'm going to be especially keen to that idea that when God has told me this is how it's done to His glory and honor, that's how I want to do it. And I believe that's where David finally came in this journeying of the ark. And What a lesson that this ancient king teaches us for our modern era that really struggles with this concept. I thank you for your good attention on this this morning. Tomorrow... We're going to kind of back up a little bit in the timeline. We're going to go back to Jericho and and see the ark there. But as we conclude our study this morning, I think it's a good place just for any who are not Christians just to stop and think that this God who loves to save, this God who wants to be among His people, this God who sent His Son, who is appropriately entitled God with us, would really love for you to be a part of His family. Let me tell you, it's got to be by book. A lot of folks out there telling you you can be saved in a lot of different ways. A lot of folks are wrong because they're doing it based on their own ideas. God has said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. God has said, repent, be baptized. And I hope you're ready to do that this morning. So, if your life is in need of of this God of glory that we've seen, if you're ready to take Him seriously, by no means put off that salvation any longer. You can come as we stand and sing together.